You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number economy. of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Welcome to another Economy Matters podcast from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. I'm Charles Davidson, staff writer with Economy Matters, our digital magazine. And I'm here today with Tony Brown and Karen Kopecki, research economists here at the Atlanta Fed. And uh, we're going to be talking about their research into long-term care insurance markets as well as uh, markets for individual health care insurance. So, Tony, Karen, thanks for being with us today. We're happy to be here. Thank you. All right. So first off, now you guys have spent a lot of time uh, researching dysfunction in long-term care insurance markets, which mostly involves insurance for older people. So first off, can we start by defining what we mean by long-term care and long-term care insurance? Sure, Charles. As we age, we all become frail. And some of us will require significant assistance with activities of daily living. Examples include taking a bath or maybe making a meal. In some cases, these health issues become so severe that we need either assistance at home or alternatively in a nursing home. In terms of long-term care insurance, what that does, it provides coverage for those who need assistance at home and or in a nursing home. Well, Karen, why is this work interesting to you guys? And you have obviously put a, put a lot of energy and, and, and brain power into it. And uh, further, why is it important to the macro economy, the larger economy? Part of the reason it's interesting is that, you know, Americans face a significant risk of having a, a protracted nursing home stay uh, near the end of life. And uh, those days are often associated with large out-of-pocket medical expenses. And what's surprising is that, you know, People are paying for this stuff out of pocket instead of buying long-term care insurance. So, you know, despite the fact that people face this large risk of incurring expensive nursing home stays, only a small fraction of people actually buy this insurance. And that's just kind of one of many sort of fascinating puzzles in this long-term care insurance market. What's also interesting is that if you look at sort of the trends in the market, that, you know, the population is aging. And you would think, if anything, that this market should be growing. People are living longer. They're more likely to be in these states where they need this type of care. And there's a larger fraction of people in the population who are going to need this care. Yet, despite that, if anything, the market is shrinking. Also, if you look at the policies that are offered in the market. Uh, You're talking about the insurance yeah, policies so now think, themselves, yeah. right? Exactly. So if you look at long-term care insurance policies that are, that are offered to people who do buy the insurance, uh, they're far from comprehensive. So they don't provide very good coverage. They're also very expensive. And yet, despite that, insurers in the market have struggled to make profits. Right. Um, And if anything, you see insurers exiting the market. One of the other kind of interesting puzzles in the market is that you see very high rejection rates. So what happens is that there are some people who try to buy this insurance, and they go to the insurer, and the insurer basically says, uh, sorry, we're not going to cover you. It's just interesting to try to understand why there's no price that exists such that an insurer will offer them uh, will offer them long-term care insurance. Right. So are those some of the major findings so far, the, the, the high rejection rates, the small number of people who actually own these policies? Is that among the significant uh, findings to this point? Well, actually, our findings are more to try to account for these puzzles that we see when we look at this market. Right. So the, 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 the puzzling features of this market, you, you, you're hitting on, that's exactly right, that uh, ownership rates are low. Many of those who apply 
find that they're denied coverage, and those who are offered coverage get complete coverage at uh, a high price as compared to other insurance products. What we're trying to do in, in terms of our model is, is understand what are the principal factors responsible for these puzzling empirical results. Right. And what we found is that there are really two distinct factors that are influencing this market. For those who are poor, there's social insurance provided by Medicaid. If your assets are low enough and, and your, your earnings are low or your income is low enough, you can receive free coverage for nursing home stays that are covered by Medicaid. Right. What's somewhat surprising is, is that the availability of Medicaid benefits also affects those who are in the middle class. Mm-hmm. Because in some situations, they may enter a nursing home as a private payer, but at some point they exhaust their, their, their own resources and can receive benefits, will qualify for Medicaid benefits. Hmm. So, so Medicaid is certainly one of the important factors under, underlying what's going on in this market. Right. The second factor, though, that is important for the middle class as well as more affluent Americans is private information and adverse selection. Okay. Uh, can you explain those, please, Tony? L- let me take on adverse selection. That, 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 that's the more tricky one. So a, a basic problem that the insurer faces is that he'll do medical underwriting and say, okay, you belong to a group that's um, average risk. But that underwriting process is imperfect. And in many cases, people have more information about their, their, their health risk as compared to the insurer. Sure. Now, this poses a conundrum for him because if he offers coverage at a low price, then what he may find is, is that he gets a lot of these high-risk types entering. If the price is too, lot, too high, it could go the opposite way. And, you know, th- you know, it's, so, th- so, so the real puzzle for the insurer is given a, a pool, he doesn't really know how risky that pool is okay. and how should he price the product. What, why are they not a little bit better at, at gauging that risk? I mean, is it a matter of I'm going to buy the insurance at age 50, I'm not going into the home until I'm 75, 80, and so things can change so much? Or are there other factors at work there that make it a, I don't know if it's an actuarial sort of puzzle, but what are the reasons why that uh, that's an, an issue? There's a lot of evidence that people have private information about their their likelihood of entering a nursing home. Like, for example, I may know that there's a history of uh, some genetic disease in my family that the insurer doesn't know about. Or it could be things like, I know that my children really want to take care of me. If I were to need long-term care, the insurer doesn't know anything about my family situation or, or, or whether my children would be willing to care for me. You know, it could be that I, you know, I know that people in my family just tend to not die, you know, or right. that, that they tend to hang on right. to very, very old age. All, all of my my mom and her mother and her mother all lived like late into their 90s. So I just think given that, you know, we, we, are, we, are, we are a family of people who tend to live very, until very late in life, uh, that, that there's a high probability that I'll be in these very old ages where I'm going to need nursing home care. And these are things that's just very difficult for the insurer to, to learn about individuals. And the other thing that, that we see is that in particular, for individuals, the insurer observes as high risk because they're already very frail mm-hmm. or in poor health. In in those risk pools, the insurer is even more uncertain about who are the people who are already very sick and about to die, or who are the people who are very sick and and know that oh, very in a very short period of time, I'm going to need to go to a nursing home, and that's why they're they're interested in buying the insurance. And because he faces a lot of uncertainty about who are sort of the 
you know, the, the sick people who are going to the nursing home versus the sick people who are, you know, maybe going to die or not go to the nursing home. He, he struggles to, to, to come up with a way to, to price insurance for that pool uh, such that he can make profits. Right. And that's, that, that, and that's what the adverse selection problem is. Okay. Okay. Can we talk about a few just basic numbers for just a second? Um, for example, typically how much does it cost to, to say, stay in a nursing home for a year? It's eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, it's about eighty thousand right. dollars. It's eighty thousand for a shared room, and if you know, if you want a private room or other, you know, fancier, nicer amenities, it would be more than that. Right. Right. So I would say eighty thousand is the lower end of the cost. Right. And it varies a lot across regions. Yeah. Um, you know, the costs in Long Island are obviously going to be a, a lot higher than the costs in rural Indiana. Sure. Sure. What about now for these policies? Now they're expensive. Do, is there a way to get a read on you know, what's the average? Premium. I mean, what what do people typically pay for for long ter- term care insurance? The average annual premiums are around three, between three and five thousand dollars a year. Okay, so it's a it's a chunk of money then, and you're going to be paying it for a long time. One would assume it's yes. about twenty years be- between the time people purchase on average and and when they receive benefits. Right. Tony, what about the the market for long term care itself? How do we see that kind of taking shape in the coming years? For example, there's been a trend toward aging at home rather than people going to nursing homes. Is, is that likely to continue? Yes. I mean, as America grays, uh, we're, we're going to see a kind of a much higher fraction of Americans that, that they're old. And um, one response of governments is, is, as well as insurers to this is, is to um, try to keep people at home. Nursing homes are, are, are very expensive, right. and if you can keep people home longer, then that, that, that reduces the cost either to the insurer or, or to the government. And so I, I expect that we're going to see um, more effort and uh, uh, associated to trying to keep people home longer. Mm-hmm. And there'll probably also be market solutions as well, that, that, that uh, services, you know, with more retirees, there'll be more services that come in and help out with the laundry or a, a whole range of other market products, such as the types of bathtubs that we see that you can open up and you don't have to climb into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, the, the market for retirees is likely to be a growing market in future Right, right. Well, that naturally leads to a question about the market for long-term care insurance. How do we see that evolving, Karen? I mean, will there be more products out there aimed at people who are going to be at home but maybe need you know, they want to cover their uh, expenses of, of, of uh, home care? Yeah, I expect we're going to continue to see this market evolve. And, and this has been an evolving market uh, since long-term care insurance product really became popular in the late 80s, early 90s. And I, th- I expect that what we're going to see going forward is that as, like, like as Tony was saying, as we, I think, see a shift towards trying to keep people out of nursing homes and getting care at home, I think there's going to be more active management of insurers in the care that individuals are receiving. So insurers also have a lot of skin in the game when the um, care management plan for an individual is decided upon. Um, so not only obviously does the individual probably care a lot about, am I going to be in a nursing home or at my own home and who's going to be caring for me? The family cares about that, but the insurer cares because that will impact a lot the, the payout that, that they have to give in terms of claims um, to the individual that they're insuring. And I, and I think the problem that you have when you get more and more into home health care as opposed to nursing home care is that with home health care, there's a higher risk of a moral hazard problem. And this is because 
for nursing home care, the view is generally that people don't want to be in a nursing home, that they would only go there if they really need to be there. But for home health care, there's some evidence that there are some older people who who like the idea of having somebody come to their house. To, a companion. Yeah, to a companion, to. someone to talk to, someone to help them with to run some errands or, or do some housework, even though they may not really need that person due to their health conditions. So there's, there's going to be more of a concern by, by the insurer that individuals may buy this insurance with the intention of using it just to pay for a companion that they don't really need. And so that's why I said there'll be more effort in, in just trying to uh, screen individuals to make sure that they really need uh, the insurance claims that they're requesting and perhaps actively managing their care and coming up with better solutions to, to solve, putting some resources and trying to figure out what's the best, best way to provide them with you know, the care or the help that they need. Maybe, I wonder if at some point you could sort of hire a companion, maybe someone rents you a dog, for example, or, or a person to hang out for a while. I don't know. That's I'm being somewhat flippant, but not not really. I mean, it seems like something that could uh, could be out there at some point. Well, communities are also involved in, in, in this issue. We're seeing an increasing number of communities starting to provide like daycare services for adults. So, so you can go to uh, a community center. Mm-hmm. And, and spend time with other adults of, of your age. And so, so you know, th- these are arrangements that historically were handled exclusively by families in the community, and both will continue to play an important role. In this right. Well, Tony, now you have deep experience uh, researching as well as living in Japan and uh, economics there. The aging process there is farther along than we are here, demographically similar, but they're in a more sort of a more drastic position, as I understand it. The population is actually shrinking in Japan. Uh, are there lessons learned there that uh, that may come into play here? Well, one important difference between Japan and the United States is that um, the, the the nature of the social insurance for long-term care is, is quite different. In the United States, we have Medicaid, and, and as we discussed previously, Medicaid is means-tested. A second feature of Medicaid is that it's a secondary payer. So if you have private long-term care insurance, that's the primary payer. Medicaid is a secondary payer. In Japan, th- there is uh, social insurance as well. It's, it's a more recent phenomenon. It, uh, they started up the program around 2000. And it's a, a universal program that all retirees are provided with some base level of benefits. And, and, and there is a, a needs assessment, but it's not uh, financial needs. It's more medical needs, you know, the, the, the number of ADLs, assisted daily living that you have. Um, so, so the first tier is uh, there's universal coverage, and it's up to some cap, and then you pay out of pocket. But there's also an annual cap in your out-of-pocket payments. And the, the other difference, I would say, between um, Japan and the United States is that uh, when they talk about the role for society in providing social insurance, they use the term preventative that they're interested in keeping individuals out of institutions and at home as long as possible. Right. Well, it sounds like we're moving a little more toward that model, I guess. Medicaid is now experimenting in, in some states with offering home services as well. But it's a relatively recent phenomenon. It's a phenomenon, though, that I expect we'll see more of in the future. Right, right. Interesting. Okay. Well, now, I understand that you guys are starting to turn your attention toward the market for individual health insurance. So, uh, Karen, can you briefly talk a little bit about this uh, next phase of the of the research? One thing that we have observed is that the individual market for working age people in the U.S. 
Uh, now, we're talking about people who don't get insurance through their employer, right? Basically, Exactly, exactly. Okay. So this would be the market um, for people who are who are under 65, so they're not eligible for Medicare, but they uh, do not have an option to or access to employer insurance either directly or through their spouse. They're looking to purchase insurance on their own by going onto the, into the individual market. Right, okay. And if you think about this market pre the ACA, it's a market that shared a lot of similar properties to the long-term care insurance market. Um, and the two big similarities, I would say, are one that it was a market where you had high rejection rates of individuals. Um, so if you recall, many people could not purchase insurance on that market due to having pre-existing conditions, just like we have people who are trying who try to purchase long-term care insurance and are rejected by the insurer due to their health status. And the other one is that it's a market where you have the type of insurance you can buy in that market is far from comprehensive and very expensive. So recall again that people who had policies off the individual market had much less the amount of coverage they had was much worse than than people who had it on the employer market, and they paid they paid a much higher price for that coverage, uh, similar to in the long term care insurance market that we see that the policies are far from comprehensive and very expensive, and uh, it's our view that the reasons that you saw you see these similarities is that there are similar mechanisms at work accounting for you know the state of the market, um, because in the individual market you also have the problem that that you have a means tested so Medicaid is available to some of these individuals. And, you know, so just like Medicaid crowds out demand for long-term care insurance, uh, individuals who can get Medicaid to cover their um, their medical expenses when they're working age potentially also don't have demand for, for this, this individual health insurance. And then the other thing is that um, you have a private information or adverse selection problem in this market, right? So it's just like uh, what we're talking about the long-term care insurance market is that Pre-ACA, if you wanted to buy individual health insurance, you had to go through a medical underwriting process. And what the insurer is trying to do there is they're trying to, to collect information about your medical needs so that they can accurately forecast your, your, your medical expenses. Individuals know more about their, their medical expenses, you know, for a variety of reasons. I might know I'm planning, you know, I'm planning to have a baby next year. I don't have to tell the insurer that when I go and try to buy insurance, you know, or, or you know, I may, you know, know that, you know, Everybody in my family had a heart attack or a stroke when they were in their 60s, and you know now I'm 60 and I'm thinking I really I better get this in health insurance because I face a high risk of having a heart attack as well in the next couple of years, something like that. So just like long-term care insurance market, you have a you have an adverse selection problem in the market, and so what we are trying to do now is is think about a similar framework except modified to be applicable to the individual market, and then try to understand how important these frictions are. Uh, potentially in accounting for for what we see in that market, and then, you know, then think about the ACA reforms and how they modified the market, like what what the impact of that reform should look like, how it compares to what we're seeing. I think what we're seeing right now in the market is that there's the market's still in a transition state. The ACA was never fully implemented, sure. and there's been a lot of political uncertainty about what that market will look like going forward. But we think it'd be very interesting, given that there's a lot of uncertainty about kind of the future of the market, to to try to understand what you know, what the ACA in the long run, what kind of effect it would have had on the market, and then also possibly to analyze some of the other reforms that have been put forth that, you know, Congress is now considering and what the implications of those reforms will be for the market uh, going forward. Right, right. So would this model allow you to basically conduct what-if scenarios? Say, if policy X is implemented, here's the likely result? Yeah, you know, the word model is very important here. We use models to answer these questions. 
and models um, are helpful in two different ways. First, there's a whole range of probably 20 different potential explanations that have been offered for what you refer to as the dysfunctions in the long-term care insurance market or the dysfunctions in the individual health insurance market. What we can use a model to do is to formalize some of these potential expl explanations and ask what's big and what's small. What are the, the key mechanisms that can account both at a qualitative level and at a quantitative level for what we see in the data? Having done that, though, the second thing that a model is wonderful for is asking what-if questions. Is to We can use it as a laboratory for, for running experiments where we conduct different types of reforms and, and consider their impact on things like coverage levels and, and pricing of insurance. Mm -hmm. I guess on some level, we, we don't want to veer into politics here clearly, but the, the Congressional Budget Office, when they score uh, a proposal, essentially that's a bit of what they're doing, right? They're running the proposal through their model and say, okay, we think in this, you know, here's the, there's a range of outcomes and here's what we think it is. Y yes, yes. <laughs> yes, and the, the difference between them and us is that they usually have to come up with an answer over a horizon of three months, maybe. <laughs> or even faster <laughs> yes. in some cases. So often, often the models they use are, are, are simpler. Yeah. But by ne necessity, I guess, because they have yes, to do it because more yeah, they quickly. have a short deadline, and they need to usually run a large number of scenarios in a short period of time. Right, mm -hmm. right. Now, a lot of work going into this, clearly, you guys, I know you guys have spent the better part of two years uh, working on this so far and, and probably working on similar problems uh, previous uh, to that. But uh, so ultimately, what is the aim of this research agenda? What, you know, what, are, what, are, we, what are we trying to get at here or, or get to? I would say the ultimate aim is to understand what, what are good policies for these markets We've identified that there's frictions, in the, for example, in the long-term care insurance market that impede the market from providing a, you know, a, large, a coverage to a large amount of people and at a reasonable price. The next question is really, well, what, what can we do about that? What, what should the government do to improve the insurance options of individuals? For example, it could be that, you know, should the government be putting restrictions on insurers uh, or on the markets uh, to improve their functioning? Or, or, for example, maybe the government should be providing a public alternative to the private market. Like maybe Medicaid should be expanded so that it's not just a means-tested program, but it's more like Medicare. It's an entitlement program, and everybody can get government nursing home care covered by, uh, by the government. You know, I, I guess I'm going to toot our own horn, but one of the contributions of our research is that we have a, a theory that can account for the fact that we see insurers screening not so much through offering different types of contracts. I mean, they, they do that in our setup as well, but the, the new screening device and, and the most significant screening device that, 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 that our model can account for is the fact that uh, insurers reject clients. Right. <laughs> These rejections and denials, we, we've talked about two specific markets, but uh, denials occur in a whole range of insurance markets. And so, so, so we have a setup where we can actually talk about that in a sensible way. Other insurance markets, say for, for automobiles, homeowners insurance, appliance, warranties, things like that, I, I, I trust those are much simpler in, in most ways than, than the kind of stuff we're talking about here. But those markets, I guess in general, seem to function reasonably well. 
are there things to be learned from those markets, or is it just a matter that they're so different and so much simpler that it's just there's really no real comparison there? I would say that they're they're quite a bit different. The private the adverse selection problems are are less severe in those markets. So both of the, the the key frictions that we've identified, I think, are less important. So I think I think there, there's less of an adverse selection issue, and there's there, there's not really an alternative public option that potentially is, you know, crowding out demand um, or reducing the ability to make profits in those markets. Yeah, I mean, take the automobile insurance market for instance. Um, you know, that's a market where, in virtually all states, there there's a mandate. Yeah, you have to have you auto have to have insurance. insurance, right? And right. There, there, there's no mandate right right now that says. You have to have health care insurance. I mean, there, there's some costs if, if you don't, but the, you're not required to, right. to purchase health care insurance. Yeah, and there's definitely know, no so mandate for long-term care insurance. Yeah, right. And, and, and right. So, so that, that's one important difference, and, and certainly that, that's been discussed right now, the role of mandates in this market Yeah, yeah. or in these markets. Yeah, yeah. all right. Well, guys, there's an awful lot to uh, – to chew on here, and uh, I, I trust you guys will be hard at work on this for some time to come. Thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Join us next month, please, as the Economy Matters podcast will look at the results from a recent Atlanta Fed survey of business optimism. So how bright does the future look to firms in this time of transition? Well, be here next month to find out. And as always, go to our website, frbatlanta.org. For more economic research, there you can find Karen and Tony's papers, as well as lots of other interesting and important economic research and other materials. Thanks for your time today. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.